0: Well, welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Uh, my name is Owen Rissak. I'm a partner at Clifford Chance. And I'd like to introduce you to today's podcast, which is actually the first uh, in a new series of podcasts for us, which will be called our Clifford Chance on Credit Series, uh, looking at debt and credit investment by funds and asset managers, And that's from things like structuring, regulatory, and and tax considerations, due to market updates on on particular types of investments, whether that's from sort of real estate or um, distressed debt, through to things like direct lending. And today's session is going to focus on those questions and topics you really always need to start with when considering a sort of debt or credit strategy. So, So very much a sort of 101 around, tax and regulatory questions you need to think about, and the ways in which financial investors, uh, asset managers, and funds actually sort of take take an investment in or or sort of gain exposure uh, to debt or or sort of gain exposure to investments in the loan space. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by three specialists in this area for the podcast today. So we have uh, my partner, Simon Crown, who's a partner in our regulatory team, uh, focusing in particular on asset management regulation. Uh, we have Faisal Khan, uh, a structured finance partner with expertise in particular, uh, looking at investments in, in debt and the lending space. Um, Tony Stewart, a tax partner. Again, with a particular focus on asset management, uh, structuring of funds and these types of investments. And we'll get a bit of input um, from each on their particular areas um, before sort of wrapping up with final thoughts on what we're seeing in the market at the moment.
1: So I think Basel is probably
0: turning to you to start with. Uh, probably the starting point is always to look at actually investing in debt itself, and 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 how sort of financial asset, financial investors and sort of asset managers are typically doing this. Um, so, from what you see, what are the main ways that financial investors and and sort of asset managers are investing in debt in the European loan
2: market? Well, thank you, Owen, and hello, everyone. Um, in answer to the question, I mean, it, it's probably worth saying that, you know, most of these structures will involve some form of vehicle being set up uh, by the fund, which will provide the lending role. And then that entity will uh, either participate in the primary syndication of the loan, so when the loan is first uh, created or arranged. Um, and, and, and that does happen, although perhaps more commonly, um, you will see financial investors buying debt in through the secondary loan market. Now, when an investor buys in through the secondary loan market, um, they can either take the loan and own it directly, or alternatively, uh, and some, some people prefer this, or there might be regulatory or tax reasons for this, uh, Financial investors will buy in through uh, synthetic structures, such as participation arrangements, uh, a common technique used in the banking market, where the lender of record, the the bank seller, will uh, hold the loan, it will retain the relationship with the borrower, but it will sell what's known as a funded participation in the loan to the investor. So the investor effectively pays up a lump sum in exchange for the economics on the loan. Uh, similarly, uh, many financial investors will enter into perhaps more complicated transactions. Uh, we see investors investing through what I call synthetic structures. So um, these can be uh, total return swaps. Uh, total return swaps perhaps are generally used on portfolio transactions, although they can be used on individual uh, transactions. Uh, financial investors will uh, invest through risk transfer structures such as synthetic securitizations, this is where an investor will buy exposure to a uh, usually a portfolio of loans uh, by buying um, uh, securitization notes. You can use credit default swaps, and you can also buy an exposure through credit-linked bonds. And I guess it's probably worth saying that we probably see uh, pretty much any or all of these approaches Uh, What depends for a particular investor will depend on their strategy. Uh, It will depend on uh, the regulatory status. It will depend on tax considerations. Also, importantly, in the current market, it will depend on the investor's desire for control over the asset in question. Uh, As we're seeing uh, defaults rising in the current environment, Um, A lot of people will want to have direct control, so be the lender of record in the loan, so that they have a direct uh, seat at the table when it comes to enforcement or any restructuring. It's also probably worth noting that um, most financial investors will come in and buy term debt rather than revolving debt, and that's simply because they're just not set up to handle the operational aspects or, or requirements that are needed, to
0: manage a revolving credit pool. Yeah, it's quite an interesting point at the end there, Faisal. And it always always sort of reminds me that we probably wouldn't be being good lawyers if we we didn't say the devil is always in the detail around some of this stuff. And and listening to what you were saying there, you know, whether it's something like, well, it's going to be more sort of turned out because of the challenges uh, or something like a revolving facility, you know, differences between primary syndication and and the sort of secondary loan market. I mean, I've been very struck by the the more we're we're seeing the sort of of work um, with asset managers. Uh, I've been quite struck by the sort of underlying documentary constraints uh, and sort of how much focus you need to give to the sort of documentation and the contracts um, to get all this to work and how important that is in the structuring. Um, I mean, from your experience, what are the kind of documentary um, constraints that financial investors and, and managers might face if they want to invest into European loans?
2: And you raise a very important point, which is that, um, well, I guess when you're buying into a loan, of course, if you're part of the overall structuring process, then you're going to have a say in the same documents. However, most people will tend to buy in through the secondary market, so the loan agreement is already written. And the most common uh, provision or the very first provision that I would be looking at if I'm advising a financial investor is the transfer section right at the back of the credit agreement. So this is a provision which effectively sets out the mechanics for how a lender can assign uh, their or transfer their interest in the loan to a buyer. And these provisions um have over the last uh several years become increasingly restrictive as uh borrowers in the market have had a stronger say in what the doc in, in, in what the documents do and how they operate. Now just to, to put this into context, um, because it, it helps explain the point, originally the loan market was very much a private market. It was a market based on relationships. So you would go to your relationship bank, you would ask for a loan, and the loan would be provided on the basis of the broader relationship that you would have with that that, that lender. Contrast that with the public debt markets where you would go out to the, the public market, you would issue paper, um, while you would probably know who your biggest uh, uh institutional note holders are, you wouldn't necessarily know who all of your uh, note holders are. And so uh when it came to uh, uh seeking waivers, etc., in the public market, you are more at um you're more at risk of the whims of the of of the note holders as opposed to the private market where you where where a borrower can typically leverage their relationship with the lender to help uh with um for example, consents and waivers for potential defaults, but also consents and waivers which would allow uh, the borrower to expand their business with that, for example. Um, so originally, loan documents tended to be quite restrictive in terms of transfers. Then about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more, as the secondary loan market opened up, loans became more tradable and... Uh, perhaps that was a time when lenders had more say in the documentation, and so lenders were able to include provisions in the documents which allowed them to uh, perhaps more freely transfer loans. There was certainly more liquidity in the market. Then um, we've had the last, I guess, five to seven years where sponsors have had the upper hand, and uh, sponsors and uh, also very strong investment-grade borrowers they wanted to go, go back to that uh, private relationship and have therefore wanted to reintroduce controls over who holds their debt. So what you see in a typical credit agreement today is a transfer provision which will say, first of all, that the loan can be transferred to a bank, a fund, or an entity which is set up for the purpose of making loans, which will typically include CLOs and, of course, uh, some SPVs. That's the first qualification. So most financial investors will be able to set up an FPV, which will be able to qualify as a lender under the loan. That's stage one. Stage two is that the loan agreement will then go on to say that, however, a lender cannot transfer its position in the loan to anyone who is a competitor of the borrower, distressed debt fund, or someone who is not named on an approved list of lenders. And if you don't meet the criteria, you need to get borrower consent in order to transfer the loan to your buyer. Unless, of course, the the borrower is in default on its payment obligations, or its insolvent, or in other cases, is otherwise in default. That's just an example of a typical type of transfer restriction. Now, the, the thing to note is that not only do these provisions uh, restrict a direct ownership transfer. So this is when the financial investor becomes a lender of record in the loan. But increasingly, you are seeing these provisions being expanded by certain sponsors and, and uh, investment-grade borrowers uh, to provide that the loan can, um, that, that the lender cannot also not enter into a synthetic transaction, so a sub-participation, a total return swap, uh, etc., um, if they intend to pass on voting or control over the loan or decisions that are made under the loan to the investor. Again, the idea being that the borrowers are trying to retain control over who controls their debt so that they can leverage relationships. So, the important thing to note is very much when you are looking to buy into a credit agreement, you know, one of the most important things to look at are the uh, transfer provisions to ensure that you are able to buy into the loan without the need to go and get consent. Now you might say, well, you know, is it really a big issue um, to, to to go off and to, to, to have to ask the borrower to get consent for a transfer? Um, you know, it really depends on whose debt you're buying into, but I will say that it, we have uh, certainly seen in the last few months, interestingly, a number of occasions where uh, a lender has agreed to sell a loan to a financial investor. Uh, it's turned out that the, financial inve- that the financial investor could only take the loan if the borrower actually consented to that transfer. And then the borrower has turned around and said, no, they don't agree to the transfer. And so the traders had to settle in some other way. So it is, it is very much a real problem and certainly, you know, an important part of your due diligence exercise.
1: Hmm. Thanks, Hazel.
2: Yeah. It's interesting
0: what you, you say there. Listening to some of that, because coming at it from a sort of regulatory perspective, I guess, as, as soon as, as soon as we uh, I hear sort of, why well, you be setting up SPVs as a lender, so you potentially have a new lending entity there, and, and sort of what level um, is this the sort of lending or investment taking place, or you know, thinking like about buying into the secondary market um, compared to something like. Being the primary lending, but that for that, me then starts turning our mind to well, what are the sort of regulatory and, and, and sort of licensing considerations that you might need to think about, but also what are, and in particular what what are the sort of triggers for those, you know, when we're looking at the sort of structure and uh, financial investor of the fund making the investment, taking that participation? What are the potential triggers and the relevant considerations from a sort of regulatory uh, licensing perspective? And Simon, perhaps I can sort of turn to you and we can get into that in in a bit more detail because I think think it's always interesting the different permutations we see in the market uh, and what can actually trigger regulatory considerations. You know, does it matter where the lending entity Uh, is located or, you know, where the borrower is located, perhaps even where the actual security is located. Um, I mean, could you you give some sort of insight from your experience as to what you see as as those key factors? Yes, uh, of course, and and hello, everybody.
3: Um, So the first thing to say is that obviously at the outset of of any uh, new lending structure, there will be uh, some analysis done of, of the licensing requirements. And as Owen says, that will start with a identification of the relevant locations. In other words, in which jurisdictions will will the relevant activities take place and what are the licensing requirements in those jurisdictions? Now, this regulatory analysis always has to go hand in hand with the tax analysis um, If if what we're actually looking for is the optimum uh, answer as to uh, the location of the different um, entities within within the lending structure. Um, and and Tony will we'll, we'll cover those aspects um, la- later on. Uh, but as Owen said, so our first question is going to be, where um, uh, are the lending activities taking place? Um, now, we would obviously look at the uh, location of the lending entity, and we would look at the location of the borrower. And we would say, well, what is the the licensing requirement applicable to to lending in both of those jurisdictions? Um, And therefore, uh, it is good uh, practice before any any loan is extended to uh, a borrower who's located in a new jurisdiction to to work out what, uh, if any, licensing there is in respect of lending into that jurisdiction. Um, Now, so we talked about lending jurisdiction and borrowing jurisdiction. We, we often get asked, um, does it matter where the security is located? Well, so, so sometimes we see that the location of the security is taken into account um, where, the, where the owner of the asset um, uh, is located. So it, it may be that if it's going to be, say, a, a German real estate loan, you know, that, that people might might consider whether... whether um, that the lending entity would be in Germany. Um, now, obviously, as I say, you know, the tax analysis would be would be would be primary in, in that case. Now, this, the location of the security is not normally relevant um, to uh, to the licensing analysis. Um, I mean, one other thing that we should talk about here before we start talking about why, why are we concerned with uh, the licensing analysis is, is, the type of the borrower. Um, so another question we would ask when we've located uh, where the borrower is, is we would, we would, we would say, um, well, does that licensing analysis change? if that borrower has a specific kind of um uh, status so for example um you know if it's a, if it's an individual which obviously will, will be unusual in this context um but sometimes you can get caught out if it's uh, actually a, a say a, a, an sme um borrower because that that could actually um uh, trigger requirements if we say think about the uk uh, licensing regime um consumer credit so to to an individual or in some cases to a small partnership is licensed as is uh, anything that's secured on residential property um, uh, but otherwise uh, corporate lending is 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 not regulated and the reason that we care about all of this um, is because uh often breach of the licensing requirement um, in either jurisdiction uh, it can often be a, a criminal offense or it can be a civil offense um and uh, you know will usually lead to um unenforceability issues uh,
0: uh, as well thanks Simon. And, and it's quite interesting there when you get into what triggers sort of licensing requirements at a sort of starting level i mean do you see any difference um sort of in the market or or across european jurisdictions uh in, in terms of uh, so the difference between primary uh, and secondary positions in it in the way and sort of that yeah no absolutely i mean
3: so now that we're say looking across um the eu um at how license uh, how licensing is applied to uh to lending the, the the first observation is that it's it is unharmonized um so unlike other areas of uh of european financial services such as securities business uh, or say uh, uh, banking activity such as say deposit taking straight lending um, is is not licensed on a harmonized basis so you do actually need to look um, at, at each relevant jurisdiction um, uh, and therefore the picture is that is extremely varied so if we look um, at uh, say um, uh, France um, or or Germany we can see that there are um, strong local uh, banking monopoly requirements uh, which apply to to, to non retail lending as well as retail lending um, uh, and then you need to look at at what uh, what exemptions or carve outs there may be to those to those local requirements and and as you, as you as you rightly ask um uh, in both of those jurisdictions, there is actually a, a, a different treatment where the loan is fully is fully drawn down. Um, so, for example, in respect of France, so a primary loan is is, is certainly going to be uh, a licensable activity. It's going to be subject to the banking monopoly. I mean, there may be other exemptions to look at. So, um, the one that's often um, uh, used in respect of France is to ensure that that the the fat pattern in respect of the loan is does not Points to this taking place in in France, and um, so you so you ensure that the borrower is not in France, and you limit the connections that the nexus um, to, to to France. Um, so, uh, however, um, if the loan is fully drawn down, um, then that does not breach um, that uh, that licensing requirement. Now it gets a bit more difficult in Germany because uh, under the German Banking Act. Um, wholesale lending uh, is licensable, um, uh, but a fully drawn loan, um, a purchase of a fully drawn loan, would not breach those requirements. However, um, you can step back into licensing requirements um, in respect of certain prolongation of the term of the loan uh, or certain um, uh, instances of restructuring of the loan as well. So it's not it's not a, a free pass if the loan is fully drawn down, and obviously any further extension of credit is going to put you back back in as well. So, you know, it's a messy picture. I mean, there are other exemptions in in other jurisdictions, so often reverse solicitation or purely cross-border. If you look in Sweden, it may be that there's sort of a a minimal amount of business in Sweden, that that there would be an argument um, there that would
0: would get you out of uh, the licensing
3: requirement. Yes, yeah, it's,
0: it's interesting, isn't it? Simon, when you when you hear about this this patchwork that uh, exists across the EU and almost um, seems so sort of counter to our usual experience of the, of the EU, where you often have some sort of pan-European solution. So you know having to deal with this patchwork in different regimes can be quite challenging. So I was wondering, from your experience, are you seeing a uh, sort of optimum regulatory status in terms of ability to lend or, or, or you know, what, what forms of status do lending businesses take when we're looking at sort of asset management. But I guess in particular, where we think Brexit is going to come in here uh, in terms of the common lending structures, we see and why, that, why Brexit might uh, have an impact in terms of uh, those sort of structures and accessing European borrowers. Yeah, yes, no, uh,
3: quite. I mean, I think the, 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 the best license status that you could have to conduct a pan-European lending business is that of being a credit institution, uh, that of being a bank. Uh, and obviously that is such a, a massive step up in terms of regulatory burden and cost and time to market and so on, that it's, uh, it is a very effective barrier to entry to, to being a pan-EU um, lending business. And there is, Frequently, discussion uh, you know in the context of uh, you know capital markets union or sort of you know boosting the economy in the EU of uh, of of the great benefits that there would be to a non bank pan EU uh, lending status. Um, if we were being cynical, we would say well that the banks would obviously be uh, would obviously be threatened by such a status, but then also the regulators uh, would point to. Uh, the you know the risks that are uh, involved in, in a rapid expansion of non bank um, lending um so in terms of you know, um, liquidity management excess leverage the you know, concentration risk and so on um you know all all of that regulation that applies to, to banks you know, that hasn't been rolled out um, in its entirety to, to non bank lending um so um, there would be a leveling up. Um, in in, in that respect uh, if there was an expansion of the ability of of, of non-banks to lend Um, there are some there have been some some positive developments um, so uh, these are not um, particularly at an EU level these are more at a member state level so in Germany uh, in 2015 uh, Italy in 2016 France in 2017 um, there were uh, different uh, exemptions um, created to 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 the lending monopolies in those jurisdictions. So just looking at the German one, for example. So there's an exception under the the German Banking Act um, for loans uh, by uh, an AF managed by uh, an EU AIFM. And obviously one of the issues there is that as, as you as you point out, Owen. Oh, obviously we need to be mindful of Brexit impact on any of these lending structures. Uh, and that therefore means that um, that a that a, a non EU uh, A structure um, wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't be able to take advantage of of, of that e- of that exemption. Um, now, otherwise, I think the question is 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 either um, you know operating within the scope of, uh, uh, of of those particular exemptions in those particular jurisdictions, and then in respect of the other jurisdictions, it's taking advantage of things like. Uh, you know, with solicitation or, or, or cross-border uh, cross-border exemptions, or confining yourself to, to, to fully drawn loans. So, so um, it, it's, it is suboptimal in terms of non-banks operating a pan EU lending business. We're not quite there yet on, on the
0: regulatory front. Thanks, Simon. And I guess one thing we should touch upon before turning to um, the tax considerations is also the real focus we've seen over the last few months, um, particularly uh, coming out of the current crisis, is is this real focus on listed debt um, and and sort of trading uh, of listed debt. Uh, It's always struck me that actually, you know, whether you're doing that for the first time or whether you've been a sort of fund asset manager that has been deemed sort of purely in, in the sort of straight loan space, you know, unlisted space, if you like, that it, there's actually quite a marked change once you start moving into listed instruments and some of the regulatory um, sort of considerations that can come into play there. Uh, is it possible just to give us a sense of, you know, if you move into that public market, you know, listed space, what are those additional regulatory things you need to worry about?
3: Well, the... The, the primary concern is going to be the application of uh, of, of of market abuse um, requirement. um so to the to the extent that the that the uh, that the financing instrument is is an instrument which is subject to, to, to mass. let's just say you've structured the financing as a subscription for a, for a bond issuance um, with a with a listed instrument uh, on any on an EU venue then that's going to be um, subject to, to, to MAR, so the issuer itself will uh, obviously be subject to, to disclosure requirements, but then to the extent that you um, are in, involved in that issuance or getting information and, uh, and uh, at the eighth level or, or underneath the 8th uh, you're, you're holding um, those assets and at the same time the AFE is receiving um, information, then there are going to have to be uh, effective uh, procedures in place to uh, ensure that the issuer is making its appropriate disclosures. And then if not, um, uh, then there are, you know, effective uh, information uh, barriers in in place as well. And it's also worth saying that, you know, similar requirements can apply outside of
0: of the the EU uh, as well. Thanks, Simon. So I think, Tony, perhaps if we turn it over, Um, to to the sort of tax considerations, because I think I've learned over many years that we can get to sort of one answer from a regulatory perspective, um, but but obviously equally, uh, if not more important, is is the sort of tax considerations as well uh, and how they come into play uh, and can actually change um, by sort of jurisdiction and by structure. So obviously, I, I guess as a starting point, the tax position of funds and financial investors is, is very different from that of the banks. What can that actually mean uh, in terms of the impact at the investment level?
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Owen. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, to start with the with, with the blindingly obvious. The the nature of a bank is obviously very different from most types of financial investor. Um, in that banks are typically big corporate established in jurisdictions that enables them unquestionably to access applicable double tax treaties. Their own tax position tends to be, at least in in this sense, relatively straightforward in in that it doesn't really matter to them um, what the nature of the underlying loan is. They can buy it. They can sell it. It's all part of their trading book. And um, by and large, the, the other key fact about banks is that because they were the the loan market obviously has been dominated by the banks historically, the the legal documentation, the precedents are all set up around around banks as the lenders. When one starts then to move to the financial investors, um, a lot of those factors cease to be cease to be the same. So while it while it's probably on the tax side, relatively similar if you're talking about a large insurance company established in Europe um, in the sense of it being a big corporate able to access double tax treaties. If you're looking at a fund, that fund itself will either be established in an offshore jurisdiction uh, and or it will take a legal form such as a partnership that even if it is established onshore can't access double tax treaties because it's not a, a taxpayer in that jurisdiction. So all of that goes to say that you 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 have to think about tax at the underlying asset level in a way that typically you don't for a bank. Most obviously, that is access to double tax treaties to mitigate withholding taxes. And while there are a lot of reasons to set up underlying um, lending vehicles, as, as Faisal said at the, at the very outset. Access to double tax treaties, I think we have to acknowledge, is is one of them. Um, So typically one would go to to Luxembourg or Ireland, uh, which would hold the assets and, and hope to access the double tax treaties in those jurisdictions. And again, going back to what Faisal said, one would hope, therefore, that that lender was a qualifying lender for the purposes of the loan documentation. Everything would work, but it's definitely something to be wary of. Because there are a lot of challenges to the access of double tax treaties, whether under domestic law in terms of substance or, or as brought in by BET section six that can say, even if you on the face of it can access a double tax treaty, you are still uh, at risk of challenge. I think the other thing to, to note is that unless you're – if you're you're mindful of this, is the risk for the fund or the institutional investor having a tax liability as a result of undertaking the loan activity in the relevant jurisdiction. So, in other words, if you start um, lending from a, a place of business in some jurisdictions, those jurisdictions will seek to tax you on the profits of that business. Most notably, The the U.S. is is the prime example where originating loans in the U.S. can can lead you to be deemed to be carrying on a U.S. trade or business and subject to U.S. tax. All of this feeds into how the underlying loans have to be structured, how they have to be acquired, which then sets up very much, as, as you just said, the loop. And as Simon said, the loop back in with the regulatory side. So just to just to pick up one point that's, that's the obvious um, sort of source of tension potentially in, in what's been said in the last 15 minutes. Uh, as Simon notes, there's there's an exemption for low lending by AIFs in Germany, but of course the underlying SPV is not the AIF, and therefore one has to uh, one has to sort of square that circle somehow, um, and similar sorts of issues arise pretty frequently across the board. So it's very much a holistic exercise.
0: Yes, it's it's interesting, Tony, because even there, you're reminding me of of some of the particular challenges we've we've seen on different structures. That you know, the U.S. piece always strikes me as quite tricky when, you know, something could be squarely okay in Europe and then actually looks very different when you put a U.S. lens on it. Uh, and the problems that can can trigger. And I guess broadly, you were sort sort of pulling out all all the permutations there, or, or things to think about in terms of you know underlying asset level impact, or possibility uh, of sort of fund level liability. Um, you know, of course, what we've seen over the last few months, and what no doubt COVID will continue to cause, is is, is quite a lot of disruption in the credit markets, um, with lenders, you know, quite understandably seeking to take advantage of that disruption. Um, when you start considering those, those sort of, you know, tax questions, tax points in that context, but, uh, are there particular things to watch out for when seeking to take advantage of that disruption in the market?
1: Well, the answer, obviously, is is yes. Um, you wouldn't have asked the question otherwise, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But um, I think think the key point or or the key sort of overriding point for the the question is that, yes, there are, but very often these are not points that would necessarily apply to banks. And therefore, again, it's it's another one where the the financial investor has to think about its own particular situation. So just to pull out a few few of the things – um, and these, these sort of circumstances will arise. We saw this in the financial crisis where often a lot of funds and, and, and other investors had a fairly settled strategy, knew what they were doing. But as you say, market disruption arose. A lot of opportunities consequently arose. But because funds started to do things differently from what they'd been set up to do, um, it, was, it was sometimes the case that the structure that they had didn't quite fit or changes needed to be made. Um, So I think I'd I'd just pull out a couple of things. Um, Obviously, there is a lot of opportunity to buy loans cheaply and either to sell them on when they recover a little bit or to work on them or to hold them to maturity and benefit from from the pull to par as everything hopefully recovers. The quick flip type approach has two potential tax points to watch out for. The first is the risk that you turn what was formerly an investment activity, which is generally treated quite benignly for tax purposes, into a trading activity, in which case you start to have questions about being subject to certainly UK tax if that activity is carried on from the UK in a way that a simple sort of lend and hold to maturity strategy wouldn't wouldn't raise those questions. The second thing that is slightly less obvious for but that can be important for funds is that it potentially sends you into a problem on something called the interest, uh, the income based carried interest rules. Um, and effectively if, if a fund has carried interest, it can increase the rate of tax applicable to it, potentially from 28% up to 45% in the UK context. So that's, that's a very specific UK, quite, quite techie point, but very easy to miss. Um, the the other thing I would say that that you have to be careful of is that um, recently Luxembourg in in complying with the BETS recommendations has introduced rules that limit interest deductibility and thus while the use of a Luxembourg holding vehicle is generally relatively uh involves relatively low tax leakage um, in the sense that you have interest in, interest out, and a margin is payable on the, on the spread in between on the basis of arm's length remuneration. That interest cover for the payment out can be restricted in the case where you buy a loan at a discount and then it, you, you make the profit on the pool to par. The, the Luxembourg interest barrier rules will not give you a deduction for all of that. And therefore, you can find yourself with a very significant Luxembourg tax liability if you try and put that strategy through your existing structure. There are ways to deal with that. There are ways to mitigate it. But again, it's, it's part of the process of being aware that the, um, the strategy that might be appropriate now with the market disruption uh, will we'll raise additional questions from those that were, were first considered when funds were set up prior to the COVID situation.
0: I, I almost thought there, Tony, we're going to do a whole podcast without an acronym, uh, but we've got BETS in there, we, 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 which is good. Um, I mean, perhaps as a sort of final direct question on the tax piece, which I actually is a question that I'm, I'm always surprised never comes up as much in, in the regulatory space, although I think there are uh, sort of considerations there as well. But this is thinking around lenders actually enforcing security, and, you know, are there any headline points there to watch out? from a tax perspective
1: yes there are I think everybody everybody typically accepts that once you're into an enforcement scenario then then the world changes very very differently and very significantly but I think there's one point I would flag in the UK again because it's relatively new and potentially has a number of knock-on effects so in the last in the last couple of years we have introduced Capital gains tax for non-residents in respect of UK real estate it used to be the case that, that as a non-resident you could buy and sell UK real estate without without being subject to UK tax. Those rules will now apply to not just uh, sales of UK real estate directly, but also to sales of entities that are UK property rich. So just to sort of turn that into a bit more bit more sense. If the fund enforces, finds itself holding UK real estate, then it can be in the position where the fund itself and potentially its investors have a liability to UK capital gains tax. Now, maybe in some senses, commercially, you say that's okay because the UK tax rate is relatively low. And if one is making uh, any profit out of an enforcement scenario, then that is that that's not a bad place to be in a bit of tax leakage is acceptable. But first of all you've got to you've got to ensure that you actually do get the gain and it's not you, you haven't sort of rebased the asset down to zero somehow so that any money you get out will be taxable. But much more importantly I think is in a fund context, thinking about the risk that you are going to give your investors a UK tax payment and or filing obligation and that as a result, you will be in breach of some of the side letter provisions you may have given. So, again, it's, it, it's pretty obvious, but, but once you're in an enforcement scenario, um, all, all previous assumptions and bets are off. And you really do need to think about the tax implications of holding assets and be aware that those rules in not just the UK, many jurisdictions uh, move around quite a lot. And you, you have to structure specifically. And that's great, Tony. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. We're sort of moving in, in,
0: into the last two or three minutes, really, for the podcast. Um, and perhaps it's worth just turning to each speaker for their for the final thoughts or, or sort of key takeaways. And, and, and perhaps, phase we start start with you, because I think it's been interesting listening to all the regulatory and tax points. You know, what, what else, um, you know, what it prompted in your mind are sort of other points that made you think of that, that sort of often come up and people should have in mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's adding, you know, every transaction there's going to be, what do the documents say? There's going to be, what is the regulatory situation? What is the tax situation? But also, and some of this has already been underpinned, and um, I think Simon made the point, is that when you are from outside Europe, you do need to remember that if you are buying into the European market, remember that we, we, we have a, a patchwork of different rules. So we have different insolvency rules in each jurisdiction, we have different regulatory rules, and we have different tax rules. There might be harmonization rules as to which country's rules apply to a particular situation, and and the principles will generally be the same, but you don't always get the same answer. So that is certainly an important point for investors from outside Europe to remember. Uh, A couple of other quick sort of market-driven points – Uh, particularly if you are trading in the European secondary loan market. One is that if you are buying into debt in Europe, then you're likely to be trading on LMA terms. If you are, for example, from the US and you're used to trading on LSTA terms, it's just worth noting that while the documents essentially do the same thing, um, there are differences. There are differences in, in market approach, differences in the way that you approach due diligence. So, um, just be aware of that, particularly if you are from the U.S. and you're used to, to dealing with the market in the U.S. because the documents are slightly different. They work in a slightly different way. Um, the, the other final point I just wanted to quickly mention is that, um, again, a, an important timing point for investors, you know, these are, there has been, particularly at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a great focus on buying assets cheap, and I'm aware of, uh, settlement times in the U.S. Um, being um, actually incredibly fast. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case in Europe. Um, settlement times for lo- for loan trades continue to be uh, longer, uh, and the main reason for that is KYC. It's something that the market is working incredibly hard to address, but it, it continues to be a... Not necessarily a blocker, but certainly something which slows down settlement times in, in the European market.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, the dreaded KYC topic it continues to continues to cause uh, a lot of pain for all of us. Uh, I think on the, on the sort of buy side uh, and structuring of transactions. Um, I mean, that's really helpful and interesting, phase. I mean, I mean Simon, from from the regulatory perspective. Um you know certainly you've seen a real well, I was going to say real boom but sort of real continued boom um in sort of growth of lending by what often we call alternative lenders outside of banks i mean how do you see that playing out down the line in terms of you know, regulatory focus and development yeah so i mean if if you if you listened to
3: to the regulatory uh, picture in respect of um lending? licensing uh that i referred to earlier on you'd sort of wonder how how any lending at all is done by the buy side in europe but of course it happens um and and it's growing and it's uh there are different products and different jurisdictions um uh, and so it, it is it is a healthy market um i think you know as i said before the the regulators um, you know, since the financial crisis, so they really started crystallising their thoughts through the Financial Stability Board, 2011 onwards. The European Commission is very focused on uh, on, on shadow banking, the risks posed by shadow banking, um, and yet, you know, we see some developments uh, in, in in the area at an EU level. So we see, for example, you know, securities uh, financing transactions, that element. Uh, money market funds. We've seen some development there, but in uh, but in terms of um, opening the market up uh, at the same time as leveling up regulation, we don't we don't see a huge amount of change. And even something like the COVID crisis, with the, you know that great demand for uh, for, for uh, you know, a boost to to companies which are which are short of uh, funding, it you know, hasn't seen a, a hasn't seen a rush to. to to open up the market from a regulatory perspective. So I'm pretty pessimistic on on that side. Um, So I think um, that at an EU level, what we will have is is restrictions and reporting and caps on leverage and focus on liquidity and so on. Um, I think on the positive side, I think these are more likely to be at a member state level. So we will look at, as I mentioned before, Germany, Italy, France. We've seen um, Ireland. Um, uh, try and encourage, within certain limitations, encourage lending by the buy side as well.
0: So I, th- I think that is probably where the door door will open. Thanks, Simon. I was, I was happy you shifted to a positive note then, because I, I thought we might we might struggle if it was pessimistic and then shifting to tax. Um, to Tony, <laughs> hopefully, in terms of any final thoughts from from a tax perspective, um, we don't head back into pessimism and it's all okay, right?
1: Well, absolutely, always, always, always optimism from the tax world. Um, I mean, I think, I think one of the one of the things to note on on sort of the withholding tax position, of course, is that a lot of a lot of jurisdictions don't levy withholding tax, so in some ways, the the tax of of entities that are lending into those jurisdictions becomes a lot easier. I think the position of treaty protected lending vehicles set up underneath funds. Is going to be um, is going to be continue to be an area of uncertainty. Um, there is there is a view in the market or, or within within governments, some governments, that these structures are wholly artificial and should be stamped down upon. The reality is that the vast majority of private funds certainly have entities sitting behind them that could access double tax treaties. And so really there is nothing nothing untoward going on in these structures. But I think that fluidity, and going back to what I said earlier, uncertainty vis a vis the position of a bank that is just a large corporate established in the jurisdiction whose tax status is entirely clear will will continue to be slightly challenging. Um, on the other hand, I think that my my main takeaway really is just to be just to be slightly wary as opportunities and the market develops of reading across things that have been done before. And picking up one of the earlier comments uh, that, that Faisal made, you know, you, you do have to be careful about different phraseology, different practices across markets. And so what we might consider to be loan origination that might cause a tax problem in the UK is different from how the Americans use the phrase. And similarly, although there are a lot of concepts across Europe that seem similar, uh, they can often be slightly different on the tax side. And therefore, you do have to be quite granular, quite precise on the analysis. But but very much, as Simon said as well, I think our experience, what we see is, is a growth in this. And I can't see that, that changing.
0: Oh, that's great, Tony. Thank you. And uh, thank you um, to everybody, Simon, Faisal, Tony, for the contribution today, um, if you want to listen to any of more of our podcasts or, or uh, more of the series, they will be available on Cliff Chances podcast library. Um, you can access all our other materials with a sort of fund asset management financial investor focus as well uh, on our financial markets toolkit where we actually sort of host all of our briefings uh, and different webinars. Uh, so you've been listening to the Cliff Chance podcast. Please do subscribe to our podcast by visiting christchance.com and do follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you.